the principles used to treat brain-injured children, if you take those same programs and apply those to children who are not obviously brain-injured, you get accelerated children. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Pudua, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. As we take a break from recording, we have chosen to replace several of our greatest hits for you to enjoy. We hope that you are able to gain insight for your educational journey. So Andrew, this episode is entitled Understanding the Brain. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because of your background in child brain development. Well, Understanding the Brain is a very ambitious title for a 20-some minute podcast. Well, maybe we'll break it into two. Yes, I do have some training in what we might call the field of child brain development. Brief history, as you know, I lived in Japan for three years and I studied with Dr. Suzuki and graduated from the Talent Education Institute, Matsumoto, Japan. But what happened to me in the last six months when I was there was I came across an interview between Dr. Glenn Doman and Dr. Shinichi Suzuki. Hmm. The reason I came across this interview was because a friend of mine, who was also a student in Matsumoto, she was uh, perfectly bilingual, raised in America, but Japanese, both Japanese parents. So she was asked to translate this interview into Japanese. And so I got a chance to read it, and I was overwhelmed. I, I mean, I was transfixed, if you will, mm. by the conversation these two great men were having. And so very quickly, I ordered Glenn Doman's wow. book. And so I, I ordered this book and got it, and I read it. And I thought, well, this, this is the holy grail mm. of knowledge here. I was uh, immediately convinced that what I needed to do was go to where Glenn Doman was and sit at his feet okay. and absorb knowledge and wisdom, and that this was the next thing in my life. I also learned that the place where he was at had a Suzuki violin program. Perfect. So it was perfect. So I wrote to Glenn Doman. I said, I'm about to graduate from Talent Education Institute. I've been here three years with Dr. Suzuki. I read your interview. I read your book. I feel very drawn. I would love to come and work for you. And Glenn didn't write back, but his daughter, Janet, who runs the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential, she wrote back and said, well, we don't really need a violin teacher right now. We have a couple, but we're always interested in young people who are interested in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And we will be in Tokyo seeing families on such and such a date sometime in the next few months. You are more than welcome to come and, and visit and see what we do when we are in Tokyo. And so I thought, well, that's a nice invitation. So having no knowledge of what I would run into, I showed up at this hotel where I saw for the first time consciously in my life brain-injured children Hmm. and their families and the staff of the institutes 
talking and teaching programs of, of treatment to help fix brain-injured children's issues. Mm -hmm. And of course, the staff was teaching in English. Everything was being translated into Japanese. Uh, they immediately put me to work. They gave me a, a hotel room. They said, could you, would you like to help out here with a little bit of the easy type of translation interpretation that we need? And so I jumped right in, spent the week with them, and it changed my life. Mm. And I, I said, teach violin or no, that's where I need to go. Mm. And so I did apply then to join the staff in Philadelphia, and they received me graciously, put me through the boot camp in the School for Human Development, which I can explain briefly, and then I joined the staff. And it just so happened that about six months after I went there, one of the violin teachers on the staff, her husband was transferred, she had to leave, and so I was able to also teach in the Suzuki program that they had in the school for advanced children. So basically the institutes was set up with different divisions. The first division that I had experience with was called the School for Human Development. This is a residential program for brain injured adults. Mm. And so these were kids, I think the youngest was 17, maybe 14, 14, 17, all the way up to 30 something. And I had to live in the dormitories with them, eat with them. I had to do the full neurological treatment program with them, the full social development program and administer that. And it was really a boot camp. And so I've never been a very physical person, although mm -hmm. I did martial arts in Japan, so mm -hmm. I wasn't completely a wimp. But I'll tell you, <laughs> when you have to jump in and get up in the morning and run three miles and do 18 trips of brachiation on a 30-foot overhead ladder. Wow crawl for a quarter mile, creep for a half a mile every day for 30 days without missing a day, that was the boot camp. It was right. called the 30 days. Mm. Then if you survive that, you get a weekend off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was tremendous because doing the neurological program with the students, you realize you know, how hard this is really, how important it is. You can even see little changes in yourself, in the way your brain operates. At least you can imagine that it was useful. <laughs> right. After 30 days of rigor, you would want it to be useful. Yes, yes. So that was the boot camp, as I said. And then I worked in with that school for another six months or so, and then they transferred me to the Institute for the Achievement of Intellectual Excellence. Mm. And so I was working with reading programs, math programs, encyclopedic knowledge programs, social development programs, and at the same time, I then started teaching in the international school, the Evan Thomas Institute. And the fascinating thing that Glenn and his team discovered many years before was that the principles used to treat brain-injured children and fix their vision and hearing and mobility and cognition and social, you know, any problems that they have, if you take those same programs and apply those to children who are not obviously brain injured, you get accelerated children. Interesting, sure. And they discovered this because what would happen is a family would come to the institutes, have a brain injured child and then a sibling or two, mm -hmm. and they would do that program of treatment 
which could involve crawling and creeping and reading programs and respiratory development and running and social excellence and you name it, they would do that with, with all the children and discover that the children who didn't have the serious brain injury would then exhibit accelerated growth in all of those areas. And that's how the Better Baby Institute came into being, mm-hmm. which a lot of people, I mean, you might have run into it when you were a young mother, but there was how to teach your baby to read, how to teach your baby math, how to give your baby encyclopedic knowledge. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it was kind of a almost a cult-like thing. At one time, people were all excited about teaching babies to read. I was just interested in how to get my baby to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a program no. <laughs> for that. but So... I had then the great blessing of spending a good chunk of the morning and sometimes the afternoon in the Evan Thomas Institute working with children who'd been on the program since a very young age, Mm -hmm. generally were accelerated in many ways. We were teaching at a very high level. And then I would go into the clinic in the afternoons and evenings, and I would work with the staff there and learn how to teach the programs of treatment to the families of brain-injured children. So it was really, you know, there were 12 to 14-hour days, you know, five days a week. It was very rigorous. I lived on campus. We had staff meetings regularly. We had five-day trainings, either the What to Do About Your Brain-Injured Child Mm five-day course or the five-day Better Baby course. So I lived that life for three years Mm -hmm. and received, you know, some certification from them in child brain development and it was just priceless. Mm-hmm. And I look, you know, at the hand of providence mm-hmm. behind my life. And I think, well, if I hadn't had, you know, kind of a disaster that then caused me to go to Japan, mm-hmm. where I bumped into Glenn Doman, where I then went to Philadelphia, where mm-hmm. I could teach music and learn child brain development, and that whole kind of six, seven year period of my life, how amazing that was to prepare me later on to help so many parents and people I meet at conferences and whatnot. Right. They have issues and problems, and, and I can understand things so much better. Right. And then, of course, when I saw the writing program, as we've talked about before in the podcast, I said, that's a Suzuki method mm-hmm. for teaching writing. Right. This is a developmentally appropriate method for teaching writing. I don't like the buzzwords developmentally appropriate, mm-hmm. but the truth is when when you try to do something that is not developmentally appropriate, you get poor results, mm-hmm. unhappy children, frustrated teachers and parents, you get a disaster. Mm-hmm. So what's the pathway? And then when you see different issues, when I see different issues with different kids or parents describe their children to me, I can often, I think, give them some very useful, practical advice, short of saying, you know, get thee to Philadelphia and learn about child brain development yourself. Right. So one of the first projects that I helped you with many, many years ago was creating a DVD course, Understanding Child Brain Development by Matthew and Carol Newell. Yes, we did that at Biola. Yes, we did. It was a good experience there. Well, Matthew and Carol were both staff members at the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential mm. while Glenn Doman was alive. I was working there. Matthew was kind of my mentor in, in a way. And their daughter was born right when my daughter was born. So we were mm-hmm. young parents 
together and, and good friends. I was there only three years, and then I needed to move to Montana where my mother was and do other things. But Carol and Matthew stayed on at the staff uh, there. And then at some point, they left and started the Family Hope Center, mm-hmm. which is also in the Philadelphia area, bringing their you know cumulative decades of experience and their own knowledge and, and angle on things. And they started the Family Hope Center. And I got back in contact with Matthew, and it was wonderful to see what they had done. Applying the same basic principles, and yet being open to some new ideas, Mm -hmm. and continuing to pursue best practices in a way, Mm -hmm. and building their staff. And so I invited Matthew and Carol to come to Los Angeles and make this DVD set, so that rather than me having to give 20-minute explanations to people on the exhibit hall floor, right. <laughs> I could say, buy this. Mm-hmm. You know, listen to this. It'll explain a whole lot. If it doesn't help you or make sense, send it back. We'll give you a refund. I'm not trying to make money. I want you to have this information. And if this makes sense, then here will be the next steps for right. you. Right. And I think it served its purpose well. Right. And I'm very much in awe of what Matthew has done, uh, really continuing on, in a way, the great work of Glenn Doman and his staff. Where else on earth do you find someone who helps blind children see and deaf children hear and crippled children walk? I mean, in a way, it is right? <laughs> it is miraculous. But in a way, it's the application mm-hmm. of this cumulative centuries, if you add up all the expertise of all the people who've been working in this field of research and and clinical Right, and as I mentioned, this was a project that I worked with you on, and I actually sat in. All of his advice is something that every parent can do. It's not like you would necessarily have to go somewhere. And I love what you say about your intelligent children that maybe don't have the brain development challenges, that that can benefit them too. One of the things that he talked about was smells and how smells can be a way to help the brain develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Glenn Doman used to say something, I've repeated it times. At first, it's a little shocking or abrasive to people, so you just explain it. But, you know, Glenn Doman would say, every child is brain injured. Every child is brain injured. It's just a question of location and degree. Now, you got to unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have neurologically flawless. Hmm. Perfect. Okay, who's there? No, None of my kids. <laughs> None of the kids I know. On the other end, you have comatose, right? Everybody's somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And when we understand that, then we understand that the principles of developing the brain, whether it's in the sensory areas or the motor areas, whether it's in vision or sight or touch or smell, or whether it's in mobility or manual function or speech, there are certain principles that when applied on a daily basis, will help to accelerate that growth in those areas. And of course, what we see with brain-injured children is often they can be very high 
in some areas and completely handicapped in another. Right. You take, for example, children with severe cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. It's a midbrain injury. Their cortex may be completely unhurt. They may have an intellect that dwarfs their peers, dwarfs you and me. They may, they may be brilliant, but their speech and mobility don't allow them to express that brilliance. On the other hand, you can have a child who looks perfectly normal, uh, walking down the street, you'd never guess they had a problem, and yet they've got cortical issues that can be diagnosed, it could be labeled autism or auditory processing functions that inhibit and make learning very difficult. So our work at the institutes and what Matthew has continued on, and, and I don't do this anymore, but I point people towards those who can, is to learn how to diagnose, evaluate, create a program to treat those specific areas of need, accelerate brain growth to improve function so that learning and action becomes easier. You've talked about so many different things, and I'm hoping that we will have time during this podcast or perhaps go into part two. Some of the specific things, you talked about creeping and crawling, you talked about the cortex of the brain, location of where your injury is can affect certain functions. Ah, I mean, I don't know anything about any of this. What, <laughs> what should I know to help? Well, my boys are all grown up now, but what do I need to know to help my grandchildren? Your grandchildren. Well, that was really how the Better Baby course came into being. Sure. Was If you had a young child, a baby, a young child, and you wanted to give them the best neurological advantage, mm-hmm what principles would you apply? Great. And so, yes, I mean, one thing we know is that the sensory pathways, that would be visual, auditory, tactile, and then olfactory and gustatory, which are connected. So five senses. The senses. The sensory pathways are developed through stimulation. So if you have, for example, a child who has a severe visual problem or mm-hmm. is blind mm-hmm. or a severe auditory problem and can can barely hear or is deaf not because of an ear issue but because of a brain issue then what you do is you will stimulate that pathway with a frequency and intensity and a duration of stimulation that is determined to be optimal for where they are in that pathway one of the things that Glenn Doman developed that is so powerful, and then Matthew in the Understanding Child Brain Development expanded on this, is this developmental pathway where you can see uh, where children start basically when they're born and as they move up in levels toward pretty much a, a fully mature function around the age of six or so. So if you have a child who is deaf or almost deaf, what would you do? You get a foghorn and you'd blow that foghorn for a short period of time, many, many, many dozens of times a day. Why? Because you're sending very powerful high intensity mm-hmm. auditory stimulation with high frequency and short duration to burst and essentially cause the part of the brain, a part of the brain that was not predetermined to hear, to start taking over that function. 
One of the terms we hear a lot, especially in the last decade, which you know I've been out of this for quite a while, neuroplasticity. Okay. Right. It was once believed that brain injury was permanent. There was nothing you could do about it. Once you had a stroke, you had a stroke. There was no recovering really. It was just accommodate the symptoms, live with it. Right. Cerebral palsy, you've got cerebral palsy. You're just going to live with it. So let's equip you with devices and things that would accommodate. But what we now know is that the brain continues to grow and develop. Uh, and really, Glenn Doman and the team were on the cutting edge of this idea of neuroplasticity. Parts of the brain are kind of pre-designated to do certain jobs. So you have an area of your brain that deals with hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an area of the midbrain, an area of the pons, and, and that's all connected auditory pathway. Well, if part of those brain cells in that area of the brain have died because of brain injury, right. prenatal, neonatal, postnatal, right? other areas of the brain can start to perform that function if the cells are stimulated in that pathway. So with blind children who you want to see, you stimulate them with bright light, with short duration, with high frequency, you can actually create visual function in children who didn't have it, assuming the problem is in the brain and not the the eyes. Same thing with children who don't feel. You've got children whose tactile function is so bad that they could put their hand on the stove and not notice it until their flesh was burned off. Yeah, not good. Which is a hard thing to think about. Well, what do you do? You want to stimulate the tactile area with a variety of things, a Mm -hmm. variety of stimulations, and try to rebuild those pathways. Mm -hmm. And same thing on the mobility side. If you have a child who is not speaking, then how do you stimulate this? And so there's speech development programs. Mm -hmm. If you have a child who's not mobile, how do you develop that? If you have a child whose manual function is uh, limited, how do you develop that? And so these, all the programs of treatment are designed to find out where is this child on the profile and what activities done with frequency, intensity, and duration of an appropriate formula will get them to the next level. Right. So you mentioned the word pawns. So that's a part of the brain, I would Yeah, assuming? so, uh, yeah, the, the pawns is the, like at the top of the brain, the, the stem. Okay. And that is at a very, very deep level. Children's pawns is activated usually when they're born and continues to grow and develop in the first few months. You can't be too hurt in the pawns and live. Oh, I see. So it's rare to find a lot of injury there. Mm -hmm. There can be some, you know, diffuse injury. So just Um, basic physiology. The pons is connected to the stem, which is connected to the spinal cord. Yes, and it deals with a lot of your survival functions like breathing. (laughs) Right. Right. But all of the sensory motor function has to pass through Mm. the pons. So if there are some mild injuries, that can interfere but usually, that's not the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. The midbrain, of course, is above the pons, and the midbrain is the area that develops, particularly when a baby starts to crawl on their belly and use a cross-pattern motion 
right arm, left leg, left arm, right leg, and then the baby pushes up and starts to creep on its hands and knees, right hand, left leg, left hand, right leg. And so that that crawling and creeping develops that mobility function in the midbrain. Okay, can I just stop you a minute? Because you said crawl and creep, and what you described is actually exactly the opposite of what I understand crawling and creeping to be. So can you just say that again? Crawling is well, on your belly? Yeah, a lot of people have some confusion on that. Glenn Doman, because he was a military mm-hmm. man, he was a, a colonel in the medical corps, I believe, mm-hmm. he uses the military definition. Okay, great. So when soldiers are out on the field and have to go under the barbed wire, crawling is on the belly. I see. And when they need to go a little faster but don't want to stand up and get shot, I guess, <laughs> creeping is on the hands and knees. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's the military definition. Got it. But those activities help to develop the midbrain area. And they are naturally what babies will do mm-hmm. in the first 3 to 12 months of life. You'll see them start to become mobile 3, 4, 5, 6 months usually And what they'll discover through trial and error is the most efficient way to move across the floor is in a cross-pattern motion. Mm -hmm. Now, some babies don't do that. They may push uh, homologously, pushing both feet and trying to push their body forward, pushing both feet at the same time. Or homolaterally, well, they try to use only one foot because the other one's not working so well, and one arm, and then they end up kind of going in circles <laughs> right. and not getting to where they want to go. Right. Or sometimes they won't even crawl at all, and they'll manage to sit up and then kind of butt scoot, mm-hmm. you know, pull their feet <laughs> and scoot on their rump. And so all of those are not ideal. Right. The ideal thing for brain development would be to be on the belly moving forward in a cross-pattern motion because that's what's going to make creeping easier. So last night, we were at a social event together and I borrowed a grandchild. You borrowed a grandchild. And you commented that she had good cross-pattern. She was developing it um, late for her age, Mm -hmm. but it was very fortunate, I I thought, that she is developing this this good toe dig with a cross-pattern motion. And she's kind of in an odd stage because she's crawling on her belly and she's trying to creep on her hands and knees and she's trying to elephant walk on her feet and <laughs> yes. hands all at the same time. All at the same time. And uh, so, you know, interesting to to study, but, but that's she's not good. Wa- but she's not walking. She's not walking. And that's good. That's fine. That's fine. In fact, that child, knowing her history, knowing the way she is right now, probably would benefit to spend more time, a couple more months, Mm -hmm. at least on the floor, creeping and developing that cross-pattern motion. Now, the interesting thing about the cross-pattern motion is that at the top of the midbrain is the corpus callosum. Mm. This is, if you will, the intersection between the midbrain and the cortices. Now, we say cortex, singular, plural would be cortices, and the fact is we have two. Right? Okay. We have our left brain and right brain. We have our left cortex and right cortex, and they're separated. Hmm. This is what's so amazing. In fact, if we were able to, we could take off the top of your skull, <laughs> and we would see then a division between the cortices, and, and it would be possible to 
to stick a, a ruler or something right in between the two hemispheres of your cortex and touch the top of your midbrain, the corpus callosum. And all of us in this room that are listening to this are squirming right yes, now. Yes, <laughs> because nobody would want that. But that's interesting because it's the cortex where we have the distinctly human functions. Mm -hmm. So when we do two things in a coordinated way with two sides of our body, whether that's swimming or whether that's playing the violin or whether that's tracking with two eyes across a piece of paper, mm. we need the two hemispheres of our cortex to be working in coordination, right? Coordination. And that happens through the corpus callosum at the top of the midbrain. So all the information coming into the cortex has to pass through from the from the nerve endings in our body or in our eyes or ears, from the, ex the, the most external ending of the nerve, through the central nervous spinal cord, through the pons, into the midbrain, through the midbrain, and into the cortex. And likewise, all the motor function has to move out from the cortex through the corpus callosum, midbrain, pons, and out. And so that, that top of the midbrain is extremely important if we want to coordinate the hemispheres of the cortex. This is why when you see a child with a, a distinctly midbrain injury, mm -hmm. such as cerebral palsy, right. right? And as Glenn liked to say, cerebral palsy has nothing to do with the cerebellum and it has nothing to do with palsy. Mm. It's, it's completely misnamed. Right. But what it is, is it's a profound midbrain injury that interferes with the two hemispheres of the cortex working in a coordinated fashion. Right. Thus, when you see people with cerebral palsy, they walk, if they walk, they walk very awkwardly, right. limbs moving not in a coordinated way, right. and that's a manifestation of that midbrain injury. I see. It's complicated, and there's so much more to talk about. Right. Well, that just I guess that means that we have to stop now, but pick this up next week. Sound good? We'll do it. Great. Thanks so much for joining us for one of our favorite episodes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or you can visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. New recordings will begin airing in January of 2020. Until then, we hope you'll join us each week as we revisit our greatest hits.